Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Got a really great guest this week. Joining us, Amy and myself, is Benjamin Studebaker. Benjamin is a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, where he's studying politics and political theory. He also runs a really great blog that we're going to talk about some of those pieces in detail throughout the course of the episode. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So in the wake of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's election, democratic socialism is on the minds of people across the United States. Uh, it's just come out this morning, as we record on Wednesday, that Cynthia Nixon, a New York state gubernatorial candidate in the primaries there, has declared herself to be a democratic socialist. So this episode, we really want to break down what is the meaning of democratic socialism? What are the different contexts in which people are using this term, how should socialists like ourselves orient to this moment? Um, you know, this is a, openly a socialist podcast. We are Marxist in orientation, uh, but we try to thread a certain kind of needle when dealing with uh, the, the particular moment that we find ourselves in. And so I think Ben, Amy, and myself are going to try to hash out these topics over the course of the coming hour or so. But first things first, I think a really illustrative parallel to the moment that we're having over here in the United States is, uh, is playing out and unfolding in the UK right now. As many of you will know, the Tory party in the UK is in free fall in some senses. They had two cabinet, uh, senior level cabinet ministers resign in a 24 hour period. That's the first time it's happened since 1979. And that was when the labor government was in the middle of dissolving and the Thatcher government was ascendant. And we all know what happened thereafter. So, Benjamin, what the hell is happening over there in the UK? You spent some time there as a University of Cambridge student uh, during the school year. What do you make of this legitimation crisis that Theresa May and her government are, are facing right now? Yeah, this has been a long time coming. The Tory government has been trying to, on the one hand, please this group of hard-right Brexiteers who want to get out of the European Union completely and totally out of it. And the European Union, which says, hey, if you want to continue trading with us, you need to make a deal with us that we can live with. And the deal that the European Union wants and the arrangement which the Tory right wing wants are completely irreconcilable. And yet the Tory government has for the last two years pretended that there was some way of making this work. There was never any way of making it work and it's now come to a head. I think, as I, as I mentioned, I think this is a very illustrative example. It's, a, it's something for us to look to coming uh, from the United States. And while we certainly don't have a parliamentary system, and obviously the, the historical lineages and legacies are quite different there, uh, what the Corbyn government is attempting to do is something that I think we should try to emulate here in, in the U.S. And of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing something very similar to that uh, in her own particular context. We had Max Shanley on, who is a moment, momentum activist over in the U.K. Labor Party, and he talked quite a bit about what it means to build a mass democratic socialist or socialist sort of orientation inside of the Labor Party. Democratic socialism uh, has taken shape as, uh, as a kind of the left wing of the Democratic Party or the, or, the, or the extreme end of what is possible in electoralism. 
What do you make of Corbyn's chances in stepping into this void of this legitimacy crisis in the wake of uh, Theresa May's inevitable uh, you know, fall, I think, from power? What kind of challenges are they going to face over there in the UK and what kind of lessons can we learn uh, standing here in the United States and, and other and other countries who, who, who are per, where their left wing governments are perhaps um, ascendant? Well, I think Corbyn, if he was in power now, would be in a similar kind of situation because the Labour Party also has a division between a more Europhile wing and a more Eurosceptic wing. And it would again be very difficult for the Labour Party to negotiate an arrangement with the European Union, which would satisfy both of those blacks. But I think if Corbyn were to get into government after this is resolved, after the Conservative Party has taken Britain out and has done it in a way that's very, very dissatisfying to one or the other of its uh, constituencies that it needs to satisfy, then Corbyn might have a chance to be a little bit more effective. And I think that's kind of been the game. The game has been to let the Tories get blame for however this shakes out with Europe, and then Corbyn can come in and clean up the mess. The question is, are they going to screw it up so early on that Corbyn comes in before it's been resolved? And if that happens, then Corbyn could find himself in the same kind of situation which the Tories are presently in. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn delivered a bone-chilling uh, you know, call to arms yesterday in front of the House of Commons, which was just beautiful. There are now only a few months left until these negotiations are supposed to conclude. We have a crisis in government. Two secretaries of state have resigned. And still, we're no clearer on what future relationship with our nearest neighbours and biggest partners will look like. Workers and businesses deserve better than this. And at such a crucial time for our country in these vital negotiations, we need a government that is capable of governing and negotiating for Britain. For the good of this country and its people, the government needs to get its act together and do it quickly. And if it can't, make way for those who can. So that is a brazen call to arms from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I, I dare anyone to listen to that and not get goosebumps a little bit. I mean, that is just a, it's an incredibly brave and, uh, you know, strident claim that if, if the, the May government cannot resolve the crisis and, and, and improve the lives of uh, British people, then uh, the Labour government is, is, is ready, willing and able to step into that void and, and take up the, the mantle of power and lead the country in a better direction. Um, you, you know, you mentioned, Benjamin, rightly so, that this is an incredibly risky venture for any government to take on this Brexit, you know, I, this notion. But Corbyn seems ready and willing and able and exuding a certain kind of confidence that I think the people are going to flock to ultimately in the end. What kind of lessons do you think the United States left has to learn from this? Clearly, the Tory government is facing legitimation crisis. I think it's safe to say that Trump is having his own uh, legitimacy crisis as we speak. It's ongoing. Of course, he has a lot of support. Um, that's just one of the uh, you know degradations of, of, of American democracy, and the, the you know all, there's so much to say there. But um, how can democratic socialists step into that void that's presented here in our context? Yeah, there's been. Uh, in, in the American case, stagnant median household incomes, real median household incomes since the late 90s. And this has produced a sense in people that whatever we're doing, it's not working for them. It might be working for somebody, but not for them. And that creates an opening for something different. And in the same way in the UK, both 
Brexit in its right-wing variety and its left-wing variety are responses to this vague sense that things aren't working out, that things aren't going the way that they were expected to go. Mm-hmm. And when that sense gets very pervasive in a society, when you have this burgeoning disappointment, it may not be very class conscious, it may not be very ideologically sophisticated, but it's ready and willing to be used by movements out there that want to do something different. And so the Overton window of politics opens up a little bit like a flower. And out of that flower could emerge something really great or something really horrible. And we're still in this period where we're figuring out whether it's going to be good or bad. So far, the bad guys have the upper hand, but that doesn't mean it's over. Yeah, I feel like, um, like obviously in the wake of the financial crisis, there was sort of that slowly dawning realization that that like 90s consensus of like there is no no alternative like that illusion was shattered but like there's really been very little in terms of substantive political change even though it's now been a decade since then so we've had like a couple of upstart moments so obviously Trump is you know a, a standout in terms of like the affect of his governance but like the way he actually governs is fairly like normative in terms of republicans like yeah it's pretty far right and like there's an everyday spectacle because he's a clown but like politically like the program that he's instituting is not not really a break with um establishment politics either so i think like sort of in this moment it really is kind of the first opportunity that a significant left alternative has had to rally and sort of show people like a, a really clear moral vision for their futures that is actually galvanizing. Um, so, yeah, I guess the hope is yeah, I that fully we get agree it with right. That. <laughs> yeah, and, and there is this because so many people have been elected in the last decade under this, I'm going to change everything, I'm the answer to what you're feeling thing. Mm. Uh, and yet none of them have been able to deliver on it. And that includes Barack Obama. That includes David Cameron. That includes probably, as we'll soon see, Macron in France. It, it includes everybody all over the place. And so this is just building up more and more dissatisfaction. And the more dissatisfied people get, the more the Overton window opens. And so even though in '09, when things were really miserable, you couldn't have done a really successful socialist campaign right away, over time, this frustration has built and built and built. And suddenly, you can call yourself a socialist. Right, right. It's a beautiful thing. I think, you know, this 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 framing is really essential to understanding exactly what we're up against and what, what we're up against and what our project might look like. I'm really glad the conversation sort of made a turn in this direction because I think it sets us up to assess the project much more effectively. We're grounded historically and structurally to talk about exactly what the forces are at work and what some of the impasses look like for those in power in terms of why they're having such a difficulty in shifting appropriately to address the needs of the moment. And I think, you know, Amy and, and Benjamin, you're, you're reframing going back to the financial crisis and, and the stagnation in wages and the union busting and all the rest of it that happened in the 90s is really essential. Because what's happening in the Democratic Party, the reason why they are so, uh, they are so vulnerable to challenges from their left is because their base, their donor base, the people that they represent in the corporations and Wall Streets and all the rest of it, their donor base will not allow them fundamentally to take up the projects and the policies that the people across the United States right now are demanding. 
And it's important to note that the people, right, are not just demanding these in any sort of organic sense, as you notice. Like, you know, you, you mentioned Benjamin rightly that that uh, sort of consciousness, whether it's class consciousness or policy consciousness or just the way that people sort of understand themselves in the world isn't sort of, you know, granted directly onto the people from on high, right? It needs to sort of, uh, it needs to be, you know, policies and needs and, and ideas need to be suggested and they sort of spread like wildfire. We saw the Bernie, Sam, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign introduce uh, higher demands, like new expectations from government. Like, why don't we have Medicare for all? Why don't we have a universal jobs guarantee? Why don't we have free universal higher education and, and job training programs? These are things that, you know, an advanced democracy should have. And I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's response to, to I think it was a question in the debate, was was really beautiful and it was something you know is obviously a paraphrase and it's probably a bad one she's much more eloquent than i am but you know she she said you know in an advanced democracy right an advanced capitalist nation you know socialism is the only uh, ideology that makes any sense right now it's 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 the one that just insists that in an advanced capitalist democracy people should not go hungry people should live fulfilling happy and healthy lives and, um, you know, essentially the, the ruling elite have had their thumb on the scale for too long. They've had their boots on the back of our necks for so long. And the people, you know, who we're looking to, to, to save us, whether it be Obama or now Trump in this sort of right-wing populist manner, they fundamentally cannot do that because their donor base won't allow it. And so, you know, these people really, they, there's, they're, there's, they're, you know, the, the elites right now are stuck with their, their pants around their ankles, so to speak. You know, they're, they're ripe for the picking. They're incredibly vulnerable. And I think it's really exciting that, uh, that there's, a, there's a real fundamental challenge uh, on the brink. So with that being said, let's dig a little bit into the, some of the news and the political moment that we find ourselves in. Cynthia Nixon is now a democratic socialist. She sort of came out to Dan Denver, friend of the show, host of the Dig Podcast, Jackman Podcast. What do we make of this? Is this a good thing uh, that, that these, these more mainstream progressive candidates are claiming the democratic socialist label? Uh, what what should we what should we watch out for here? Is this uh, is this a mixed bag? Uh, what do you, what do you make of these developments, Benjamin? Well, it's always good to see people being more willing to use that kind of terminology and feel that it's not just not politically damaging, but potentially politically useful to them to use the terminology. That said, we do have to be a little bit cautious because the way in which socialism needs to be framed to be politically competitive varies depending on where you're located in the country. And oftentimes, urban socialists in cities frame socialism in a way that makes it less appetizing to people in red states and rural areas, and vice versa. And so oftentimes when you get this quite assertive East Coast socialism or West Coast socialism, it can make it a little bit more difficult in the Midwest to frame it in your own way for the people in your own area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you were born and raised in the Midwest, correct? Yes, in Indiana. All right. So you, you, uh, you, I, I won't, I won't, um, <laughs> I won't uh, try to erase your positionality as a, as a Midwestern American. Uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it there. But what do we make of Tammy Duckworth's, uh, you know, claims that uh, that Ocasio-Cortez's strategies uh, can't work in the Midwest, given the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders won 48 percent of the vote in, in the Illinois primary? I mean, what kind of translations do you think need to take place there? Because I do agree with you. I think like there's a really cynical kind of nasty uh, 
uh, slander that sort of circulates around these sort of Brooklynite socialists, right? Oh, there's just a bunch of white boys in Brooklyn, you know, which just turns out not to be true. Ocasio-Cortez's coalition was incredibly multiracial, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, multi, uh, you know, whatever, all the rest of it, all multi-everything. Uh, so that sort of gives lie to that, that to that little piece of uh, of slander. But there's a little bit of truth to it, right? What 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 is effective in a Brooklyn community is not necessarily going to be effective in Kentucky uh, or Kansas. So what kind of translations need to need to be affected in order for the Democratic Socialist label to not have such uh, an icky connotation in places across uh, you know far flung rural America? Yeah, and, and we've seen this in both directions when Bernie Sanders was running. People said, oh, he can't get the votes of people of color because he's hawking a kind of rural white socialism that only speaks to class and doesn't speak to other things. And now with Alexandra, it's, oh, she's rocking a, a liberal coastal socialism, which only speaks to, to race and can't speak to class issues for white people in red states. And both of these are kind of reductive caricatures of each of these people, which is, are designed to make socialism less credible. But there's an element of truth in that the emphasis when you're running a socialist campaign in a city with a large population of people of color needs to be a little bit different from when you're running a socialist campaign in a red state. Just strategically, it needs to be a little bit different. And people have to be okay with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pardon my interruption. And like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like... I like I don't think that's exclusive to like socialist campaigns, right? Like you can have candidates who are running on the same party ballot line in different districts and they're going to need to campaign like for the district in which they're running. Um so I mean there are obviously nuances that are um specific to a democratic socialist campaign, but like is there any specific way in which that's like qualitatively different than just two candidates right, it's, it's from not. the same party in it's, different And areas? it shouldn't even need to be said. It's not okay, qualitatively cool, different. Cool. And yeah. it shouldn't even need to be said. But it does need to be said because we have this kind of churchy thing going in the left where yeah, there's this yeah. purity politics and everybody has to conform to the same thing regardless of where they are. Yeah, uh, which erases context. I think you nailed. Gotcha. I think you nailed the real the real stakes of the of the of the debate here. I, I'm glad, Amy and, you, and Benjamin, you sort of elucidated that because you're right. I mean, uh, the Republican Party is tremendously flexible in terms of what kind of can't what kind of positions they campaign on. Um, you know, uh, the the governor of Maine is going to run on a very diff- different kind of uh, you know campaign platform than you know a senator in Alabama. They're going to have to triangulate and, and focus on issues that are important to their constituencies. The real like question Like sleeping here, with 14-year-old girls, for example. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, like trolling the mall for preteens, you know, for example, might be uh, something that you want to do if you were down in the deep south as a Republican. <laughs> but, talking about like keeping the government out of your pot plants, you know, in, uh, in uh, you know, New England as a Republican might be more of a talking point, you know, there. And, you know, refusing to pay taxes for brown people uh, because, you know anyway but the, the real stakes of the, of the debate are the fact that people are really on the left right now they're wringing their hands over their perceived you know the perceived way in which uh, so the socialist label has been watered down and so that's really what we want to talk about here and I, this is what i mentioned in the opening of the show I've, I've called it kind of like threading the needle 
Because on the one hand, you know, Dead Pundit Society is an avowedly socialist and, and, and has, a, has a very explicit Marxian orientation in terms of how we assess the world and how we understand class formation and the development of history and politics. But on the other hand, it would just be foolish to play the role of wet blanket right now when socialism is, is so ascendant. And we want to be clear, it's not just the ideology that's ascendant. We've, we, we just outlined the material conditions that are, are, are just ripe for socialist transformation in, 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 in lots of realms of society. And so to squander that by playing the role of wet blanket to, to judge that Cynthia Nixon is insufficiently socialist and therefore we should not support her is a little silly. And yet, right, because we're good dialecticians, there's always an and yet we need to figure out what we think about this particular moment and how we can maybe steer it in a more principled socialist direction. Um, and that's that's really, uh, I'm glad we're, we're sort of coming around to this this concern because that's that's the nature of I, I, this episode. I, it's, it's going to play a role as an introduction in a new series on the meaning of democratic socialism. We're going to be having a number of guests on in the coming weeks to continue talking about some of these debates that are happening both in the mainstream and on the left. Uh, just to kind of prefigure some of the things we might just sort of talk about over the course of the the episode to come. You know, there's this idea of what about electoralism, right? We're talking about electoral politics, but electoralism is more of a pointed charge. It's the idea that's often, you know, uh, thrown around by socialists that uh, electoral fetishism is another way to put it, is a way in which you're privileging this kind of uh, realm of politics that uh, demobilizes the grassroots doesn't pay enough attention to class power and will inevitably hand over power to the elites who will be co-opted by the system and therefore, um, you know, not be able to attend to socialist transition properly. That's just one of the debates that are are sort of going on. Adam, sometimes you just have to withhold your vote to send a message. Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're not, we're not, please don't, don't, don't take any digs on the greens right now. I, I just, I can't handle the hate mail. Like my, my inbox fills up every time we take a stab at Jill Stein on this show. Um, anyway, but I, you know, but, but we can talk, we can talk about this in context. The Jill Stein moment was one, I think this decisively of a very different kind of, uh, political conjuncture than the one we find ourselves in now. To be honest, I was more kind of throwing shade at that what I tend to see as fairly incoherent arguments that are usually marshaled on the side that you were sort of alluding to in relation to electoralism. Like to me, the idea of like not voting is somehow making some communicative statement to a political actor such Uh, that like you're going to achieve something like that you're going to advance your own cause by like not voting for like what? Mm-hmm. Like do, mm-hmm. I just f- feel like there's so frequently just a like d- just complete delusion at the heart of like the way they reason about these things. So let me pitch the question to you, Benjamin, in a quite direct manner. Uh, electoralism, as they describe it, what do they mean by that? And I think there there's definitely a kernel of truth to that. I mean, I think the the triangulationist of the Clintonite wing of the Democratic Party um, it manifests this notion of electoralism letting the elites handle it. Uh, the NGOs and the foundations will come up with the ideas and it's our job to fall in line and support our, support our, you know, our, our leaders. So that's, I mean, it's definitely, it has, it has a real manifestation in, in our political history, but do you think that that fits, that maps on to, to the moment that, that we find ourselves in today? I think we have a lot of people who conflate the electoral strategy with the substantive political orientation of the third way centrist neoliberal movement of the 90s and the aughts. 
But there's no obvious reason why the electoral strategy has to go hand in hand with that kind of ideological politics. An electoral strategy is is simply state facing, simply regarding the state as an area of struggle for the left, which is a necessary area, which is one that cannot be ignored. Right. And this is kind of what we're trying to develop here. I mean, I think uh, when I say that the series is called The Meaning of Democratic Socialism, I almost wonder if we don't we, we don't need to call it something else, maybe just plain socialism now these days, as Leo Panitch famously chided me on my show. <laughs> my friend and mentor, Leo Panitch, said, well, Adam, it's just socialism. I mean, maybe you're right about that. Maybe maybe now we need to sort of now that the Overton window has shifted you know, towards the democratic socialism becoming so, so universally accepted. Maybe it's now our turn to, to move away from that and, and just say, well, what about just plain socialism um, or, well, or whatever the case to may be? be. Clear, to be clear, like I've always been in the panic camp on this one. Yeah. I was like somewhat confused by like democratic social, like this is a while back, but like I had to sort of clarify what was the difference between social Democrats and democratic socialism and like to me the democratic almost seems like a reactionary nomenclature that's like intended to diffuse like shitty right-wing assumptions that socialism is authoritarian yeah it's about talking to people who think that when you use the word socialism you mean some kind of tanky stalinist leninist thing Mm -hmm. yeah exactly well i think you know for me you know i was i've been i've been struggling with this out in the open which you know makes me very vulnerable to trolls and shit posters because i've been working through these questions and i think in a very public and open way uh over the course of my podcast it's not as though i don't have my own private thoughts i have lots of private thoughts i'm much more dogmatic in private but i try to be open (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I try to be open. <laughs> Amy knows. I try to be open and 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 uh, 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 flexible and malleable in my more public uh, positioning that I take as as this you know fictional character that I play. How's that working out? Role of my host on the podcast. And, you know, so part of that over the past year has been trying to explore this this question. And so what I the way that I formulated it when I first began was like. Uh, I, I very foolishly called it left-wing social democracy. What I understood by that was that it would be an attempt to achieve social democratic non-reformist reforms in, in, with the inevitable aim of going beyond social democracy. So it's almost kind of like a left social democracy that places social democracy under erasure because the aim is not – that's not the final destination. That That's a through way. Yeah. Right? If Building it requires social a five-minute explanation, right, you're already losing – Exactly, exactly. And so, and it's also very, I could sort of just be sort of slandered, uh, you know, as, as this sort of uh, sock dem, you know, uh, sell. Yeah, because on the left, social democracy has become a pejorative now for yeah. people who don't actually have a socialist name. Right, right, right. I mean, so God, God knows. I, I mean, my, my life would be vastly improved under social democracy. Is it good enough? No. Is it, is it, uh, is it, is it tenable in the long term? No. Uh, but Lord knows I could use, uh, you know, Medicare for all. Lord knows I, I, it'd be great if my uh, nearly six-figure student loan debt would be erased. I mean, anybody who you, anybody who spits on the notion of social democracy in the United States clearly doesn't have any problems, and I guess they have a trust fund to live off of, or they're just so divorced from the realities of, of political existence in the world that they can't uh, sort of notice they're currently living in their mother's basement. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Sorry, can I just throw in for a second that like just to play purely devil's advocate let's say there were people who are sort of a little bit more ultra i imagine that their criticism might run something like look 
if you go into the state institutions and structures with this sort of already moderated goal, that being social democracy, mm-hmm. um, by the time you interface with the extant structures, what we end up with is probably going to be an even more moderated version than the one you went in hoping to get. So there just seems to be like a couple of layers worth of dilution of what you're attempting to do. Right. I think that's a really important framing. Ben, I have a, I have a very pointed response to that. I'm, I'm, I'm currently uh, jacked up and overly caffeinated, but I'll give Benjamin, what, what, what do you make of that, uh, that kind of framing? Well, I think that there's a lack of understanding of what the state is in <laughs> among this kind of ultra left section where the state is just this thing that belongs to capitalists and just is there to oppose you and is there to water down everything you're doing. And it's this adversarial relationship with the state that a lot of leftists over for a long period of time have had many, many leftists, many quite intelligent, smart people have had this very adversarial conception of the state. But sorry, I think sorry. it's a Can mistake. I just jump in and I just want to remind you that we call it the bourgeois state. <laughs> <laughs> just jar. We use a lot of jargon here. We try to turn off normies as much as possible because that's the only yeah. way you win uh, socialism. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the state, it, it exists to maintain and preserve order. That's what the state is for. And the state will make concessions to any group of people that are strong enough to meaningfully undermine its order. And so if you are in a society where capitalists are really strong and they're on the upswing, then the state will tend to make concessions to them. If you're in a state where workers are really strong and on the upswing, then the state will tend to make concessions to them. And I I think people really have forgotten how we got the reforms that we did get and the change that we did see in the first half of the 20th century. It came down to these world wars and these world wars created this immense demand for soldiers, this immense demand for people to make munitions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this created a situation where if there was a strike, if there was a mutiny, if people refused to fight, if people refused to make munitions, then there was a very real risk that the state would lose this, this total war, this mass mobilization war, and the regime would be utterly destroyed. And in that environment, the state suddenly became very, very dependent on the support of the soldiers and on the support of the industrial workers. And it made massive concessions to them. It, it legalized unions, it empowered unions, it gave them guarantees of, of full employment, it gave them social security, it gave them health care, it gave them loads and loads and loads of things because it was essential to the state that those people not defect. And we now live in a quite different time where capital mobility is really high. And so the rich can say, hey, if you don't give us this tax break, if you don't chop these regulations, we're going to move our capital somewhere else. We're going to take our investment somewhere else. We're going to precipitate an economic crisis in your country. Whereas Wolfgang Streak likes to say, you know, capital will go on strike. Yeah, right. And then that, that economic crisis will make it such that you can't win another election because the, the best way to make someone unelectable is to make them responsible for economic mismanagement. And so we have to contend with this quite different environment. But the, the thing is that the state is not on their side in a straightforward sense. The state is there. The state wants to maintain order. And it's negotiating an ever-changing environment where the groups it depends on are constantly shifting and in flux. Right, right. That's a very, very good historical and sort of theoretical understanding of, of the, what 
what the capitalist state is and how it developed, how various classes developed by and, and through its relation with the capitalist state. Um, and we can sort of tease the, the historical there are, there are there are a lot of historical entailments there. I think about about class formation and, and what this what uh, an upsurge in labor is going to look like compared to say the 1940s and 50s and 60s. And I think those those differences are very important. We'll return to those later in the episode. But you know, I think the difficulty with those who are concerned about uh, the social democratic degradation of politics. Um, they presume that the Tony Blairs of the world were ever really meaningfully socialist in the first place. Uh, they presume that, you know, anyone in, 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 from the 1980s on uh, up until recently, very, very recently, uh, had any kind of socialist inclinations at all. And that's just it's just fundamentally not true. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I look at Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I don't see a Tony Blair for God's sakes. I mean, I, I don't see that in Bernie Sanders either. And so, just to return to the question really quickly to sort of uh, put a pin in it, I think for me, what I've been trying to develop in terms of like what do we call this? How do we frame this? Is it now social democracy? Uh, so, sorry, is it now democratic socialism? It really brings up the essence of politics, and politics is about uh, translating meaning. And sometimes we have to use words and concepts that have a certain kind of uh, certain kind of mainstream cachet. And if democratic socialism is that word right now, um, I think that we need to carry that banner and represent it to its fullest potential and hold the people accountable who are who are sort of using it, um, running from it at this point, or sort of snubbing our noses at people who are using it. Uh, and like you see on MSNBC, Anna Kasparian had a pretty had a pretty wishy-washy milk to- toast understanding of uh, democratic socialism on the Young Turks uh, last week on a little explainer video that they did. Maybe I'll link to some of these in the show notes. But yeah, it just seems I, I, I think that there's a there's a threading of the needle that needs to happen right now. That uh, that that that, uh, that I think that some of the, so some some folks on the left are prepared for it, and others are are sort of have their backs up against against this stuff. How do we move forward and how do we get beyond this this constant concern with electoralism? I think just sorry, just in relation to the whole definitions thing, I think there's also a needing to reckon with the fact that language and words only ever mean what people using them intend them to mean and and interpret them as meaning. So if it comes to like if it starts to look like democratic socialist has become a byword for like a you know, New Deal Democrat, then you can't go around like scolding every single person who's using it in that way that is sort of caught on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you you ultimately need to adapt. And, you know, I certainly like have no compunction as to like questioning Ocasio-Cortez's bona fides. And that's not even the right term, but you get the idea. But... In terms of a more popular uptake, like I think it's great that Cynthia Nixon has, you know, articulated herself as falling within that lineage. But like, I do think there probably does need to be a point at which, like, it starts to get a little bit silly. Like if Kamala Harris or oh, yeah. Cory oh, yeah. Booker oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. get on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. I don't know, baby. I'm going to be the ultra ultra purist all of a sudden. <laughs> but I don't think I don't. But I, I don't think Kamala at that point Harris it is, is ultra. A cop. 
Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I've even you know, I've had some people on my show who think that Kirsten Gillibrand has some kind of potential. Uh, but you know, I, I think even her, if she starts using this this word, I'm, I'm going to be incredibly skeptical. I mean, that's just that's just the thing, right? I, I think, think she's lot- too savvy for that. I think when the word when the word first came out, you know, when Bernie Sanders first introduced it, I believe that he was using the term genuinely to rehabilitate the position of socialism. Bernie Sanders in the 60s, he could have been a Lyndon Johnson supporting Great Society, New Keynesian Democrat. He was not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think that in his case, it really was something, an attempt to rehabilitate socialism. But what mm. we're now going to have, inevitably, as this becomes a more viable way of winning elections, are people who have no intention of ever truly eliminating the exploitative employer-employee relationship, which I think is at the heart of what it means to be a socialist. We're going to have people who don't care about that, co-opting the term for political reasons. And this is this is always going to be a struggle in politics. It always has and it always will be. You will always have people who are trying to win co-opting certain kinds of language to get you to think of them in a particular kind of sense. And so instead of focusing on language and on the terms that people call themselves, you know, progressive, liberal, socialist, we need to look more at what they're doing. What are they doing when they get into power? What are they doing when they've developed uh, Mm -hmm. a record that we can actually look at? The way that we were able to tell that Hillary Clinton wasn't some kind of progressive, I mean, she claimed to be very progressive and left wing and and so on. But the way that we knew that she wasn't was that she had decades and decades of history where she'd done extremely neoliberal, centrist, awful things. And that's what we have to look at when we're evaluating whether someone is just borrowing this term because it looks good or whether they really mean it. Right. And we really have to get away from this, this overly ideal form of, of politics and principles and ideology. I mean, I say this over and over again on, on, on this show. When I did the state theory series, I emphasize it over and over. We have to we have to get rid of this nonsense that these politicians go into government with these radical ideas and they don't carry them out because I don't know, they just don't have the stomach for it. They don't have the cojones, you know, they just don't have the the constitution to stick to be true to their principles. And so they sell out, right? Yeah, people make it about whether the politician is a good person yeah. or a bad person. Yeah. It's always this good guy, bad guy, very individualist, very heroes, villains, superhero type exactly. conception of politics. It's Marvel, Great man Marvel theory universe, politics, which uh, isn't leftist. Yeah. I mean, this is supposed to be a structural, systematic way of understanding politics and society. It is not about, oh, this person happens to be good. Oh, this person happens to have decided differently. But you see it all the time. You see people saying that, oh, Stalin ruined the, the Soviet project or that, um, you know, that these, these labor politicians – Bernstein and and so on, they ruined the socialist project because they were bad. And it's just not true. The thing is that no one in the left or very few people in the left are willing to analyze politics from the point of view of the state because the point of view of the state is icky to them. And when you're in power, you become responsible for maintaining order. And that means that you start getting pressures from these groups which are threatening your order and threatening to coup you out in various different ways, to make you unelectable or to violently coup you out in some cases. And this creates a tremendous pressure on left-wing governments because they have to negotiate a world in which there are still very, very powerful non-worker elements which are going to threaten their order if they don't make certain concessions. 
And so if you want to have socialism, you need an environment where you not only have a socialist government in power, but you also have a state which relies on and needs workers mm -hmm. to maintain its order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're at a risk of, of not having that. So to clarify, are you talking about maybe like like a dual power? <laughs> I mean, yes and no. And I think the way that dual power is often used, it's it's used to diminish the value of, of paying attention to the state a lot of the time. And it's used to focus on civil society organizations at the expense of the state. Yeah. Dual power uh, smuggles in a lot of, of uh, unexamined notions about class and class formation with respect to the state. I mean, that's, that's a very jargon laden way of looking at it. We can unpack that more as we go. Um, dual power supposes that the working class can, and moreover must develop its power outside of the state. That, that class power, working class power can develop outside of the state and its institutions and it's and it's in the realm of the state in which it, it comes up because it will then it will then organize itself workers governments, which will which will develop in parallel to the quote unquote bourgeois government. And then eventually there'll be this confrontation and the workers government will smash the bourgeois government. That's the idea. I mean, it goes back to Lenin and the, Soviet, yeah. the Soviets. And all the rest of it. So I think more than anything, it smuggles in a lot of ideas about how classes uh, uh, develop and cohere inside or outside of, of the state. And that's that's kind of the way that I like to address the, the dual power question. Yeah, I just have a couple of questions about it. So often, and I've seen a fair bit of this, often you'll get like tacit or explicit acknowledgement that, uh, quote, electoralism is necessary. But immediately thereafter, you'll get a lengthy explanation as to why we simultaneously need to build build a base outside the state in addition to electoralism. And I guess my question is, like, let's just, like, grant all the premises and let's say, like, dual modes of power exist. I just seem to have misunderstood because to me it – like, I don't understand the mechanism by which those two completely non-overlapping, yeah. like, systems then, like, how exactly does one take over the other? I don't understand. Well, for, so two the, questions. Like, there, where's the clarify. mechanism? <laughs> two questions just to clarify for Ben. A, how can they, how can these two forms of power, workers power versus the bourgeois state power be seen to be developed in, in isolation? I'm also not convinced that it's workers' power because we're not talking extensive union formations. They're often talking about like community mutual aid groups and stuff. Like Social it's not even as substantive as, you know, mass union organization. Yeah. So I have, I have two kind of big thoughts here. One is that one of the problems is that we have this fairy story about how the unions came about and the role that the unions have played in left-wing politics and transformation, which is just not true. It is just not the case that the unions formulated themselves outside the state and were strong enough in their formulation outside the state to compel concessions from the capitalist state. That's not what happened. What happened is the world wars happened. The world wars made the state incredibly dependent on the workers such that any strike of any scale for any period of time would pose an existential threat to the state. That's an extremely specific historical condition 
and it's not something that is easily replicated. Before the World Wars, the state's attitudes to the unions was that they were basically anarchist terrorist organizations that needed to be crushed. Yeah. Uh, concessions were made because of this specific instance. And we know that the unions themselves are not enough to compel the state to behave in any particular way because in the late 70s, the unions were the strongest they ever were legally. They were the strongest they ever were in terms of membership. And the, the state just rolled over them in the late 70s and early 80s. It absolutely steamrolled them effortlessly, effortlessly, with no meaningful fight back of any significance whatsoever. I would suggest that your, your narrative is 100% correct, but just to add in there, there's also something to say about capital structure and, and capacities for, for, for labor to organize the way that it did it, particularly in the, in the 1930s, right? So it's not just yeah, the fact yeah. that governments are willing to make concessions due to the world wars and the needs for sort of like inter-imperialist rivalry and capital, global capital competition, but there's something right, about Right, because the way capital, capital mobility was, collapsed during the 30s. In exactly, the 30s, the whole right. international trade system, the whole gold right. standard, all of these things collapsed. Protectionist measures were introduced. This meant that the rich people couldn't just move their money if you raise the taxes. They couldn't just move their money. And they were also scared because if they lost the wars, then they would be killed and their property would be destroyed. So they were willing to give over large amounts of capital to the state to enable the state to win the wars. And just to be clear, that's not to write off the immense class struggle that was happening in, in the late 20s and 1930s. It's just to say that, that sometimes there's class struggle that, that crops up that's very easily crushed and it has no effect on the capitalist state as we saw in the 1970s. Uh, and sometimes there's class struggle that crops up that is very efficacious at changing uh, the, the nature and the role of the capitalist state and the balance of classes inside the, sta inside the state. And I think what you're suggesting is a very important point that we need to get away from this sort of like uh, sporting metaphor of class struggle and, 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 and class power. It's not just the case that if you try really hard and you, you organize very effectively that you win. Yeah, the organization is not the only variable, and it's even far from the most important variable. You can have an extremely well-organized set of workers, but if the conditions give the capital class a lot of power, if the conditions give, uh, you know, as they did in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, if there are these competitive international forces that are pushing states in a race to the bottom, your scope for victory is going to be a lot more limited. And if it's the way it was in the 30s, where all of that is different, then you're going to have a lot better chance. We are focusing too much on getting together enough activists, getting together enough organization, and we're not paying attention to the situation for the state. And that's causing us to think, oh, if we just convert enough people, if we just can talk enough people into being left enough and to caring enough about the right things, if we can just organize them together and get them into some sort of club, then that's the same as having power over the state. And it's not true. Right. I think that, you know, one of the things that, that one of the impulses that led me to take on the UK labor, uh, you know, uh, struggle right now is not just that Corbyn is such an inspiring figure, which he is. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's also I'm in the United States. I don't specialize in British politics, uh, but but I'm taking it on because I think it's a very important test case for what we may be facing in the US in years to come, which is to say that if Corbyn's government fails to to develop the capacities inside and outside of the British state to take on the Eurozone, to take on Brussels, to take on Germany, to 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 develop a rational trade policy that can actually, you know, 
enable the working class to to interact as we've been talking about in a symbiotic way with a much more symbiotic way i should say with a capitalist state of course you know the, the workers are always going to be in some kind of conflict with the capitalists it's the nature of capitalism but the state has to necessarily mediate that relationship and if the corbin government can put its thumb on the scale you know on behalf of the working class you can see this really symbiotic sort of way but of course wall street capital capital can go on strike wall street can similarly go on strike investment strikes and so on in, in, in that way uh there you can just have an outright coup it could be a political coup it could be the the rupert murdoch's press could you know could could ruin the corbyn government in a sense if they don't develop alternative uh you know media formations and, and so on, ideological you know outlets and so on so there it's fraught with potential pitfalls and we need to understand the structural nature of the capitalist state and capitalist competition, the way that institutions function and, and, and all the rest of it, or else we are just going to have this stupid, just boneheaded narrative that, ah, well, you know, Corbin just didn't have the stomach for it. He sold us out again. Just add him to the list of the people from Mitterrand to uh, Alexei Tsipras in Greece to Jeremy Corbyn. Now they just they just they just they they were just eyeing power and they're power hungry and they were always going to sell us out and that's just the way that this is always going to work. So back to our Lenin textbooks. Yeah, yeah, and I I kind of want to make a perhaps a bit of a controversial point and say that our situation is so much better than Corbyn's. The, the American socialist position is actually a lot better than the British, even though the British have, you know, a socialist party, which is in control of socialists, which is competitive in national polling. Because when Corbyn gets into government, he now has to deal with this European Union, which doesn't have a single united federal power structure where you can impose the same taxes, the same regulations, the same capital controls over a bunch of different countries. And so what happens is unless he has governments in lots of other European states, which have all been elected at the same time and are all socialist in orientation, he's going to have to deal with an international environment in which other states are attempting to economically isolate him and poison his government so that it fails. Whereas if we get into some kind of uh, powerful position in the American case, we already have a federal structure which enables laws to be passed which hit every state in the country. And which no state can hide from. And yeah, a capitalist can pull their money out of the United States. <laughs> but this is a big marketplace to run away from. Yeah. I mean, w would you really want to do business in the global economy in anything other than American dollars right now? I mean, so they, yeah, I mean, they, they flee our capital structure at their own peril in some senses. I mean, we really have them by the balls in a way that no other nation in the world has uh, their corporations. And if they run somewhere else, we have military power, which enables <laughs> us to compel other states to hand sure. them over to us. Sure. I mean, we're, we're in a, an immensely powerful position as a state. And when your state is stronger than when you have a socialist government, it is in a better position to deal with these outside forces. A weaker state is in a weaker position. That's not how we and see it. We fundamentally either ignore that point and we compare – our electoral, uh, you know, outcomes to say Chile and Allende in 1973, and suggest that you know that kind of thing is going to happen over here, ignoring the fact that it was American capital and imperialism that compelled Pinochet to overthrow, uh, you know, the, his government. And of course, if we are at the helm of the American state, uh, we you know that that we have the p 
at least the potential to, to steer that in a different sort of more humane direction. Uh, or they just ignore the differences uh, altogether all and just suggest that the state can only ever play an adversarial role in the way that you've uh, you know, talked about earlier. And this is why I want to push a little bit against a lot of leftists want to emphasize local or state politics. And it's true that the left needs to establish a credibility with people and that local and state politics are a way to do that. But if you create much tougher economic policies for capital in a U.S. state, that capital will run to another U.S. state. It'll do it right away. And this has been the Republican strategy. It's been, okay, if I'm the governor of Texas and I'm a Republican, let's have no state income tax and let's just steal business from California and Illinois and New York until those states are compelled to follow in getting rid of their income tax. And then since they're compelled to follow in getting rid of their income tax, now they don't have the revenue to support their public services. So now they have to run down those public services and privatize those public services. You get in this race to the bottom whenever you don't have a strong, powerful state at the top to make everybody else play by the same rules. And that's why the federal level is really, it has to be, the federal level in the United States is is the ideal place to do socialism. Yeah, right. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm, I've, I've got the uh, Ocasio-Cortez fever. Uh, you know, I've, I've had Lee Carter on my show of Virginia state legislature, Virginia state legislators. I'm really excited about the DSA affiliated uh, state legislators that have either effectively already won in Pennsylvania because they don't have any real challengers or that are going to be on the ballot, you know, uh, in, in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm excited about local leaders all across the, the country. However, one thing that I've kept returning to over and over and over again is that these people, as you rightly mentioned, under our federal federalist system, are these people are relatively disempowered. States cannot run budget uh, budget deficits. They have to stay within their 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 means, and and so there's going going to be have. To, I mean, you look at um, op, uh, uh, op cooperation Jackson down there, Kalia Kuno, what what they're doing. I think it's great, but it also has a tremendous amount of limitations. They're they're operating under this kind of like very capital poor uh, cooperative models, as their name would suggest. And cooperatives are going to be a component, I think, of a socialist transition. But if we solely rely on these capital poor cooperative models, um, we're no match for capital rich, uh, highly resourced political and economic uh, powers. And so I think, you know, focusing on the Fed, fo- focusing at the federal level is the only way to have the power of the purse to rein in capital at the national and international transnational level. Yeah. And we can learn something from from the far right, from the nationalist right and its political struggle over the last decade. You know, the, the Tea Party element, which has been trying to take over the Republican Party. And we often treat it as if it straightforwardly did that. But it hasn't straightforwardly done that. They didn't quite have enough senators to straightforwardly repeal Obamacare. And they didn't quite have enough senators because while they tried to do all of these primary challenges for Senate seats, they didn't quite win enough of them. There were too many of them that they just narrowly lost and and didn't quite pull off. And some of the people that they challenged became decisive votes against them, like Murkowski, like McCain. And so this is something that eventually has to happen for there to be any kind of socialism in America. The socialists have to start winning Senate seats in significant numbers. 
And right now we're kind of beyond, be, well behind the, the Tea Party path. And it, of course, it's understandable why, because we don't have access to the billionaire money, which they have. Uh, but we are entering a, a, a different kind of period where television advertising is only now important among a particular set of voters who continue to get their news from TV in this kind of over 50 group. And that means that it's, it's, you can run a campaign now that can be effective with a lot less money than you used to be able to do. You still need some money, but it's a lot less money. And that also makes conditions more favorable for electoral socialist campaigns. Mm-hmm. So, Benjamin, I have a um, quote for you from the Socialist Party of the UK, um, and I just want to read it and then get you to respond if you <laughs> wouldn't mind, because I think it's sort of indicative of a more general sentiment Um amongst the left that probably warrants a little further discussion. So it reads, For any organization claiming to be socialist to endorse a capitalist party is a shameful betrayal of principles they allegedly stand for. The reason real socialists never support candidates of capitalist parties is that there is nothing more dangerous for the workers than endorsing a class enemy. Well, I think that this sentiment is based on a misconception that there are parties that are essentially capitalist in some way. Parties have every party, and every party is a little bit different, but they all have mechanisms for determining who gets to lead that party and who gets to run it. And some of those mechanisms are more closed, which give those who currently run the party more control over how it will be run in the future. And some of them are more open. In the American case, we have some of the most open parties in the world. And we got that after the 1972 primary reforms, which essentially turned over the decision making about who would be candidates to primary voters. In European politics, doing something like that would be considered absurd. Most European parties are members-based. And so because of this, if you've got a party membership, which is predominantly rich capitalists, uh, that would tend very much to restrict your ability to reshape that party, like, for instance, the Conservative Party in Britain. But the Labour Party is a party which has a membership which is mostly workers, mostly union people. So if those people become amenable to socialism, it's perfectly possible for the Labour Party to again, become forthrightly socialist, provided that it managed to cobble together enough MPs because you need a certain number of MPs to nominate a candidate to run for leader of the Labour Party, which happened by accident in Corbyn's case because there were some people who thought there ought to be a real socialist on the Labour leadership ballot. And so even though they didn't think Corbyn should be the leader, they were willing to give him a couple of of nominations. It really backfired against them. But in the American case, we don't even have something like that. Senators, members of Congress, governors, they have no control over primary nominations in most cases. In the, in the Democratic case, there's still the superdelegates, the one-sixth, but they're only really enough to break a close race. They can't dominate it from the get-go. And I mean, I would I would attack it as in, in my sort of like theory heavy pedantic sort of way that listeners of the show will be very familiar with at this point. I, I would attack it from from just a more fundamentally like theoretical position to suggest that any one party uh, only is is only comprised of one class, and therefore you know this class, their class, this group of class traitors or whatever. 
is is comes from the same kind of I think fallacious understanding of capitalism and the state as I was outlining in the dual power understanding, which is to say that Marxism is this understanding that there that the world is fundamentally divided between people who produce things and people who own things, uh, you know, uh, workers and capitalists. Now, there are other classes in between that he talked about in the 18th Brumaire and, and elsewhere, and we're, but we're going to skip over that for a moment because the people I'm talking about often skip over that. <laughs> but in any case, a very vulgar, easy reading of Marxism. You might call this Marxism light, you know, like Bud Light or, you know, Diet Coke or whatever. Marxism light would have it that you can just go into the world and find in an unmediated way, well, these are workers. Well, these are capitalists. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, Marx had a much more complex understanding about the way that the state, in, in our modern day uh, understanding, the capitalist state, the way that the capitalist state necessarily mediates the relations of production so that any one institution is not solely a capitalist institution or solely a workers institution. It's a capitalist state institution, which combines in various ways, uh, the, the field on which class struggle has to occur. Right. And it's also just not politically a very sensible strategy to restrict yourself to one class or one segment of the population. Successful political parties have learned that being a catch-all party is a much more effective way to stay in power and to get power and to have powerful jobs more often. And so what they do is they tell different stories to different groups of people in society, to different segments, to people living in different places from different backgrounds. And that's the thing that it's one of the things that makes us very uncompetitive is that it's a really basic thing that almost every political movement that's had any success has been willing to do. And yet a lot of socialists are not willing to tailor their message to people that they think are outside the constituency that is the right constituency, the good constituency. Yeah, that's something in particular that I find incredibly frustrating, especially with some of it, like some of DSA's more, um, sorry, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic framing. Some of DSA's more long-term horizon type ambitions um, that, frankly, just serve to alienate potential voters. Like, banging on about borderless, a borderless world. Abolish borders. Not something that is, like, that's nothing but a liability to normal voters in 2018. Right. It's not, and, and moreover, if, if you want to see a world where that is true, which I think all of us do, ultimately, it, that's the ultimate end point, right? There's this fucking you. Who isn't just a little bit of a utopian in the end of in the end of it, right? Uh, but if you want to see that world, you're not going to get it by just thumping your chest on and on and on about it in, in a really just uh, seemingly unhinged kind of way. I'm thinking about the co-chair of Portland DSA who went on Twitter and said, "As the co-chair of DSA, I can assure you something, something along these lines that communism is actually good," and. It's just like, first of all, you're using your legitimacy as the co-chair of Portland DSA to make this claim, which no respectable representative of any institutional organization would ever do, first of all, because that's that's a major faux pas. Secondly, you're, you're throwing around this word communism, which is an incredibly loaded term. 
And as much as I want to uphold a certain kind of pure classical Marxist understanding of communism, I also recognize that we live in a world where that is an incredibly fraught concept. And it is just asinine, if not suicidal, to throw that out in a haphazard way uh, to let your enemies make fodder out of it. Part of the trouble is this focus on class consciousness, which has been embedded in Western Marxism since Gramsci. This notion that what you're meant to do is you're meant to get everyone to see the world as it is, and then they'll vote or, or act politically in an appropriate way. What the right understands is that you can make immense political gains by taking advantage of the ways in which people think badly about politics. You can make immense gains. Why can't we do the same thing? Why is it that you, we, we, all the time we talk about how the right manipulates and tricks workers into not thinking of themselves as workers? Why can't we manipulate and trick uh, you know, men into not thinking of themselves first and foremost as men or white people into thinking of themselves first and foremost as white people or capitalists into thinking of themselves first and foremost as capitalists? If you can get people to identify and understand themselves differently, then they won't slot so neatly into these right-wing political orientations. But we don't even contest this. We just immediately retreat into uh, a kind of politics which turns off huge swathes of the population. Right. And now, I mean, just to be clear, I can, I can, I want to prefigure some of the haters and the objections out there. Well, we're not suggesting, I was just about to do this we're same. not <laughs> suggesting, and you might have a different point. We're not suggesting that this yeah. is how you win socialism, but it certainly is a way to build power to develop the capacities in which we might go beyond capitalism, which is an incredibly enormous task in the end of the day. Right. I mean, no one is suggesting that we're going to persuade people out of their capitalism. And I know that's that's not at all what you're saying, but I but I but I deal with uh, I deal with haters all the time. So it's, it's a little easier, perhaps, for me to prefigure some of their objections. <laughs> yeah. You? Yeah. It's you know, yeah. possible for people to read this in a very straw managed kind of way. Yeah, but right. it's not, oh, you just sit down and have a conversation with a capitalist and you change the person's <laughs> mind. Right, it's right. this it's this guys, 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 <laughs> the Socialist Party from whom. I just read a quote a little earlier. Supplemented that with this rip roarer. They're talking about their particular party that would ultimately, if elected, go into parliament, not to govern, but to end the need for a parliament. And they said, this is a task for which the Socialist Party can be used. It doesn't run for office as all the other political parties do. It exists as a vehicle which the population can use for ending property society if it decides to. This is the reason and the only reason the Socialist Party contests elections. We always lose, but that doesn't mean to say we're wasting our time. We expect to lose elections until enough people have accepted the arguments for the radical change I've been talking about. And by contesting elections, we help to propagate these ideas. So at this stage, we are mainly an educational organization. Oh, God. Oh, God. It's that class consciousness fetish again. And we've been doing this for 100 years and it hasn't worked. Well, it's incredibly years of class consciousness. It's idealist. Work. It's fundamentally anti-Marxian. Marxist, Marxism guys, guys, is, a, guys, is a historical any, materialism. Guys, guys, guys. Yeah, yeah. Guys. Oh, educate me. Go on. If we, if we just make more hashtag bulletproof logic arguments 
then eventually enough people will accept the argument. But, but, but isn't it funny? For radical change. But isn't it funny the people who produce this kind of like muscular, stridently class struggle, you know, pseudo materialist vision of socialism ultimately default if you really read between the lines. And in some cases, they spell it out for you very easily, like our friends over there in the UK and the, what is it, the British Socialist Party or something. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes they spell it out for you, but if you read between the lines, they're rampant idealists, which is just to say, like, they really truly believe that political change happens by changing the ideas in enough people's in enough people's brains, uh, which is which is fundamentally anti-Marxist, like just to to the core. And I think we want to pr- promote a, a much more materialist vision. Just I, I just have to read this sentence again. I, we expect to lose elections. Until enough people have accepted the arguments for the radical change I've been talking about. The beatings will continue until morale this, No, but this is the Socialist Party. Yeah, yeah. They're waiting for people to accept the argu- yeah. <laughs> arguments. What, what, what we need to be able to do, <laughs> and it's not like people use the expression meeting people where they're at, which is still having in, in mind this this ideas transformation right, right, in every right, person, yes, converting yes. them one at a time, this missionary, this missionary thing. But no, what we need to do is have a pilot, have a political understanding that is sophisticated enough that we can use anybody, regardless of what they think, where they come from. You find a way to package what you're selling so that you can get anybody, regardless of where they're at. It's all about that mass appeal. It's yeah. not about turning everybody into a socialist. It's about getting them to do what you need them to do so that you can succeed, so that you can have power and use it to do good things. And moreover, it's about leveraging structures, right? I mean, this is why we have – this is why we're Marxist. He was one of the first structural you know, structural kinds, fundamentally systematic thinkers. Um, I mean, you could argue maybe he got it from Darwin. Maybe he didn't. I don't know where he comes from. Ben, you could probably address this better than me. But, uh, you know, he was a systematic structural thinker, and, and which means that he understood how structures condition agency, both individual and collective agency. This is fundamentally his insight about how the working class is the only class that has the structural power to overturn the, 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 the economic and political relations under capitalism once it reaches a certain degree of development in history. And, you know, so basic, so what we're trying to do here is not just change people's minds by having the right conversations and engaging in failed elections that we're okay with. It's about producing policies and realities and institutional formations in the world that literally create different kinds of subjects than the ones that previously existed. A subject who comes up under the NHS in the UK is going to have a different affective and agential relationship to socialized medicine than someone the world who around them. They're going and to the defend it at all costs. Right? Like they don't have every day the concern that should one of their kids get sick, the family's going to lose their house. Right? That I, I don't think you can oversell just the daily impact that things like that have on just completely ordinary people. And so to my mind, like – there is so much low-hanging fruit in terms of crafting genuinely socialist campaigns that are massively appealing that the idea that you would retreat to these like really fringe elements of any socialist platform and like give them like mainstream airtime in in any form of campaign is really 
troubling. Like, and that's not to say that you have to um, change like what it is that you believe deep down on issue X. It's like, to be honest, it's as much a matter of like branding and framing. Like, we can't let the capitalists be the only ones who are good at marketing, right? Like, you just need to know. And, and you you can't have this this disdain for casuals. On the left, there's this tremendous disdain for casuals, this lack of respect for people who engage in politics. You know, maybe they vote, maybe they share some stuff on social media, but they don't make content, they don't go to meetings, they don't join organizations, and there's no respect for They're those voters. people. But if you're going to have a worker movement, you know, these, these are people who, they don't have time because they have jobs, because they have families, one of the, the consequences of capitalism is that it constantly takes people's time away from them. So then you're asking them to go educate themselves and to go join all of these organizations and to go get involved. A lot of people, all they can do is vote and share stuff. And if you can make stuff that is appealing enough to them for them to share, you can bring in more people and you can expand the base. Base broadening needs to be less about going out and recruiting more activists to join civil society organizations and more about reaching out to these, these ordinary people who don't have time. And many of them don't have the interest. A lot of people, their relationship to politics is like fixing a car. You know, if you're not someone who's really into auto maintenance, you just want to take the car into the shop and have somebody take care of it. You don't want to have to spend all of your time on this stuff because to you it's kind of gross and it's not really your thing. And we need to have respect that not everybody wants to be a political junkie and not everybody has piles and piles of free time. And yet lots and lots and lots of those people can be really useful to us. Right. I mean, I, that's how we define, I get a lot of shit for my use of normies all the time because they're or, or regular ass people in my Southern colloquial uh, manner. But if people say, Oh, what's regular and that is, am I, am I being ableist? Am I, am I being exclusionary of people on the margins? Like, no, come on, give me a fucking break. Well, we're talking about people for whom, as you just rightly pointed out, we're talking about people for whom politics is not a hobby. For us, because you are currently listening to this podcast, I would only presume that either A, you were lost and you you meant to, you know, hit click on the Joe Rogan show or or one of these true crime podcasts out there and you accidentally landed here somehow an hour in uh, and you're sleepwalking, or for you, politics is something like a hobby. You follow it pretty closely. Uh, you could be doing anything else in the world, instead, you're listening to this podcast. You are not a normie in that sense. Uh, right. You may have other normie hobbies. Um, and I think that's important to balance out, <laughs> balance out the political hobby. But in any case, you're absolutely right to point to that. And really what we're talking around non-reformist reforms, I want to be clear about that because essentially this is how you change people's subjective orientations to the world and to themselves. And the way that I think a really normie way of putting it would be raising people's expectations, right? I mean, that's what Bernie Sanders did. That's what Ocasio-Cortez has done. They, these people are raising the, the, the casuals, the normies, the everyday average folks' uh, you know, expectations about what they demand from the state. And we need to continue increasing the expectations of what people demand from the state. And it's disappointment which drives the expansion of the Overton window. And the higher the expectations are, the easier it is for people to be disappointed. And the more things then become politically possible. But if you refuse to do anything unless it's exactly what you want, then the expectations remain low. Before the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, no one expected there, there to be any equality. Nobody expected anybody to help you if you got sick. 
Nobody expected anything from the state. And so it was very easy for the state to legitimate itself without having to do any of those things. The greatest legacy of that whole New Deal era is that it changed our expectations forever. We now expect the state to make sure that we're okay and to make sure that our living standards are okay. And that is completely transformational. There would be no rebirth of socialism right now if people didn't have that expectation. And we owe that to Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson, whatever other gripes we may have with them. And to the and to the open socialists who were in the New, New Deal coalitions who pushed this thing pretty far to the left before being completely thrown under the bus. But that's and also racism. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Right, of course, right. How could we forget I'm that? Kidding. Um, but I do, I'm really glad you raised that though because whilst I try to think of the responsibility attribution in like a kind of dynamic fashion and like obviously they try to avoid lapsing into like great man of history type framing, but like I genuinely think that like um, that Bernie's campaign in 2016 or 2015, 16 marked a a very like it, it instantiated a paradigm shift that I don't think would have necessarily happened, um, at least not yet, or not not in the same way. Um, had he not run that campaign, is that like? Do you think that's reasonable? Like, or is that kind of that, that there was something kind of like a discon- discontinuity there, a certain kind of radical break with with the norm? Yeah, like I think for the first time in a really long time. He expanded um, like the the bounds of people's imagination in terms of what it is that um, they should be demanding or seeking from the state and from each other. Yeah, and I, I think I think there's a way in which you can overreact to the great man theory of history. Yeah, by by completely, uh, you know, completely diminishing the role. Yeah, of running reactive individuals in the other and collectivities. Yeah. Whereas I think you really need to have a, a balance of of understanding how uh, radical openings and these legitimate these legitimacy crises that that happen that we've been we talked about in the first half of the show, legitimacy crises produce these these temporary these vacuums where there's this sort of meaning and 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 communication and ideology sort of collapses and and, and there's an opening there for somebody to to, to take a really creative. Uh, agential sort of step to to cohere a new kind of collective consciousness and understanding of of themselves in the world, and I think that's what Sanders did in a certain sense. Uh, Benjamin, I suspect you're going to chime in and, and say say that much more eloquently than yeah, I just did. Yeah, so, and, so go ahead <laughs> and and notice something about this: how when we talk about what Sanders did, we're not saying that Sanders enlightened everybody or turned everybody yeah. into a socialist. No, yeah. You know, you can find some people whose whose political orientations developed a little bit, but that's not most Sanders supporters. That's not most people in the country. What he changed was our expectations. That's what he changed. And most of us were no more sophisticated in our analysis than we were three or four years ago, most of us. But we have a little bit more expectation and we have a little bit more belief that there's a way to do it which is state-facing than we used to have. And I think you know, you, you've got people who don't take politics as a hobby and they've got higher expectations. And you've got those of us who do, who are now starting to think, hey, we thought that you could never win elections as a socialist in America, and maybe you can. So it's for everybody in different ways and in different areas, it's an expectation shift. It's not some kind of grand ideological panacea. No, not at all. 
So to finish things up, we've been going here for nearly an hour and a half. We've got to wrap this thing up and head over to the B side uh, to talk about other topics, other uh, related topics. Uh, the patrons are going to get much more of this in uh, in the days to come. But to wrap this up, I think in essence, I want to I want to summarize kind of the the the, the themes of, of the discussion and really because it gets to the heart of what we're trying to do on Dead Pundit Society in season two and going forward. Um, what the project has been about since day one, uh, which is this notion that, you know, people ask me all the time or, or they criticize me all the time or Amy. Amy, I believe you got this criticism on Twitter, actually from a friend of the show, a really, really solid, smart guy. Um, he said, you know, well, you, you, you guys, uh, you and Adam are, are, are always sort of uh, harping on the ultra left, right? You're always sort of focusing on focusing the blame and, and the criticism on people who are on the quote unquote far left. I don't actually think they're far left. I don't like spectrums at all, but anyway, we'll call them ultra lefts for now. Whereas in my mind, the biggest concern that we have as socialists today are these people who are moving, who are coming from the center, who are trying to, 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 to uh, you know, muddy the waters of what a real democratic socialism ought to look like, and 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 in my view, we ought to we ought to we ought to you know throw more concern uh, in their direction because they're the ones who have the potential to really uh, co-opt this project in a variety of ways. And he's not wrong. So I think, but I think that require. I think sorry, this was that his claim that we should focus on centrists, or was that your claim? I don't think that was his. I don't think that was. I think that's just the general claim. Like, right, the concern is like, why are you? I mean, this is the one way that our critics often put it to us: is why are you punching left? Fuck. Well, I'm not I, all. I can't deal with first that. and foremost, I know. I, I want to keep this I positive. Even. I don't want to get too negative. Okay, sorry. But, but sorry, I think sorry. first of all, I think it's presumptuous to to say that we are punching left because I don't actually see these people as any more left than I am. I'm a, I'm as I am as socialist as they come. There's no one who's more socialist than me. I'm sorry. That's a fantasy. Now you're, now you're an ultra. It's a fantasy. But but that's just to say. That the reason why I focus my energy on people who I consider to be ultra lefts is because we, they, us, we are the ones who are going to have to steer this vessel in the, in the iceberg, you know, iceberg riddled waters that are ahead of us. I'm confused because by your metaphor. What you're trying to say is they're our liability. The centrists are a liability, but they're not our liability. They're not toxifying our brand. That that's a big part of it, and actually, I'm glad you raised that because that wasn't exactly the that wasn't exactly the direction I was headed. But what I'm suggesting is that, like, if we are going to avoid the pitfalls of becoming this kind of um, degraded social democratic formation, if we are going to avoid the pitfalls of a capital strike, if we are going to avoid the pitfalls of global capitalist competition and imperialism. It's going to be us. It's going to be we socialists, we Marxists, who are going to have to steer that ship in a principled socialist direction. But the problem is that they are, they're refusing to play the game. They're refusing to get in the game and see the role that electoral politics plays in a more, a more organically connected inside-outside strategy for democratic socialism. Right. You're criticizing the left because this part of the left won't criticize the center. It right. won't go after the center in electoral That's state-facing right, 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 politics. Right. That's why it has to be gone after, because it's an impediment to going after the center. It's making it much harder to go after the center, because it doesn't even take as its goal going after the center. It takes as its goal proselytizing. it might look like a ship, and I recognize that ordinarily that is something that, like, goes on water and floats. But this is actually a toy ship. 
and this ship is just going <laughs> to hang out here on dry land until it's in somebody's bathtub, a tsunami actually. comes it's along. The the UK Socialist Party is a is a, is a toy boat in somebody's bathtub. Um, uh, anyway, whatever. It's easy to it's e- it's easy to beat on those folks because there's probably like it's probably like twelve uh, you know blue haired old folks uh, in in a room you know screaming at each other in Cockney accents. Um, and right wingers in the press love to find those people and stick them on television and say, "Hey, look, here's what yeah. those wacky socialists—they're completely out of touch." And they are—they are completely out of touch, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's killing us. Hey, DPS. Uh, I have a PhD in YouTube shit lottery. I'm working on. She that. does. She's got it from the school of hard knocks in uh, shit lordiology. <laughs> uh, Amy is Amy is uh, the first newly minted Re- PhD resident in that, in that department. Resident expert. So yeah, I think you know just just to complete just to put a pen in this. Uh, Michael Kanukin had a really great uh, article in Jacobin. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called "Why Alexandria Ocasio Cortez Won." It is an expanded uh, kind of uh, Facebook hot take that he made that I think was really really great. Uh, Michael is, I think, a friend of the show. Anyway, I think he's a really solid guy. Uh, he organizes with uh, New York City DSA. He is currently on the campaign staff of uh, Julia Salazar, who's running for New York State, uh, this New York State legislature out of Brooklyn. And uh, he, he was really front and center for that for the Ocasio-Cortez campaign throughout. And he, he points to many, many things. He talks about the, the diminishing role of big, big money in politics, as Ben, as you rightly pointed to, that these TV spots are just not as as uh, as as persuasive and as useful as they have been in the past, which is which is uh, crippling the machine, you know, the machine's ability to, to sway elections. There's this legitimation crisis. People's expectations are raised. There's this discontent, which is bringing people out to the polls, which we've already talked about. But the one final point that I really want to want to really want to hit on here, because this is what we're fundamentally getting at is the meaning of democratic socialism needs to be flexible enough that it can work inside coalitions, but also coherent enough that we principled socialists can wield that coalition in a much more principled direction if we're given the opportunity. So Michael writes, if anyone tells you that this was DSA's victory solely, they're wrong. Ocasio-Cortez, a brilliant candidate at the right moment, brought in a whole mess of volunteers from all over the place from other organizations as well as off the street. He goes on to write, and uh, Ocasio-Cortez actually mentioned this on the Dig podcast uh, just earlier this week. He writes, what's true, I think, is that DSA was the biggest organized block of volunteers. Um, She says, I hope that Alexandria or someone else out there is organizing the rest of them. And it turns out she is. Uh, Folks should really listen to that interview with Alexandria that uh, that Dan Denver did on on the Dig podcast. It is really fantastic. And she is just top notch. Um, I can't say enough good things about her and her, and, and her organization because uh, she's certainly involved with a really great group of people. But, but Kanukin sort of summarizes what we're getting at here. He, he, he finishes up. He says, some people in DSA and the broader left need to get used to the fact that its wins will almost always be in coalition. So that really summarizes the, this demand that we've been working with, the, the, way that so, uh, that, the way that democratic socialism needs to be both flexible enough to incorporate a broad swath of people across society for the purpose of gaining power inside and outside the state. But it also needs to have 
uh, enough of a, a sort of a solidified strategic orientation so that we can work inside those coalitions to try to steer it in a much more effective direction. I, I think uh, I think that's broadly accurate. Yeah, because whenever you, particularly in the United States, where you don't have centralized control over who's in the party, you are always fighting some kind of contest within the party over what it's going to look like and what direction it's going to go in. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have that. And this idea that you're going to completely capture and totally own an American political party and then govern with it without having to work with any other party, it just isn't grounded in the way that our political system works. And if you're expecting the American political system to just transform itself for you, you're going to be waiting a long time. Right, right. I mean, then you get into these accelerationist arguments and, and you know, I don't know, the earth will be swallowed by the sun before uh, the magical day of the magical hour of communism arrives. And by then you could be in this Asimovian yeah. Solarian situation. You know, in, in the foundation novels, he talks about this planet Solaria where they get to the point of abundance and there's no reason to employ anybody. And so you've got this huge unemployed population and they're upset and they're grumpy. And so they just decide to get rid of all of these people. You know, they go on general strike, but you know, it turns out that they've got a droid army and the droid army doesn't have any qualms about shooting all of the strikers and everybody else who's at home who doesn't have a job. And they carve the whole planet up into estates, each one about the size of Colorado or Wyoming, run by a single person on his own who's been genetically modified so he can asexually reproduce without ever having to speak to anybody ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Elon. No, you're absolutely right. I think that, uh, you know, it's time for us to get our get our heads in the game. And, um, you know, I think the left needs to get on board with this, not not just to dissolve into these, you know, coalitions, not to drop our socialism to be more palatable to people. But you can do both. Politics is the art of persuading people and, and moving collectivities and leveraging structures uh, to your benefit so that we can change the world and change society and take power. And, um, you know, I think this is, you know, I could, I could talk until I'm blue in the face on this podcast every day and I wouldn't reach, uh, you know, a fraction of the people that, that, uh, the Ocasio-Cortez campaign or the Lee Carter campaign or the, certainly the Bernie Sanders campaign could ever reach. And is that the limits of my socialist perspective? Certainly not. I have disagreements with, with all of them. Not only just ideological, but but policy disagreements. But the only way that I'm going to be able to make a mass impact is if I organize and orient myself in and through those existing currents. And it's time for socialists to do what Jeremy Corbyn did at the very beginning of the episode that we opened with. It's time for us to 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 proudly and stridently proclaim that the existing world is fucked. The existing elites have fucked us and have no answers, and we're the one that have the we're the ones that have the answers, and we're ready to step in and take the reins uh, that they have so poorly, uh, you know, uh, taken for themselves over the past, you know, decades for sure, if, if, if not forever. So, man, I didn't I didn't plan on you know rallying the troops at the, at the end of the episode, but uh, here we are. So anyway, any parting words for the people, Benjamin? We're going to move on over to the B-side for the patrons and talk more explicitly about uh, some of your blog pieces that I think that were very timely from a couple of months ago, talking about the left is not a church. And we're going to continue some of the themes that we were talking about, about how what the meaning of politics is, how to engage in it as a principled lefty, principled and flexible lefty, and how to continue threading that needle of engaging with our political moment. But but uh, we're going to sign off on the A side and move over to the B side. Any any uh, parting words for the masses? 
What do you got? Yeah, I'll say this much. The more miserable you are, the more depressed you are about politics, the higher your expectations are, and the more favorable the electoral climate is for right, socialism. Right. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really fantastic takeaway. Success win. Yes, absolutely. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. This one went long, but I think it was, I think it was golden. Uh, Benjamin Studebaker, you're very much in line with the project of what we're trying to do here at, at, at Dead Punnett Society. Everybody, if you're not a patron of the Dead Pundit Society, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 or more per month. And not only will you get access to the B-side that will be released in the coming days featuring Benjamin Studebaker and the crew, but uh, you will have access to our entire back catalog of B-sides. Uh, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a summer fun drive. We kind of suck at it. I know I keep saying we're in a summer fun drive and we keep failing to mention it because I just hate it. It's like, ugh, it's so icky. But, uh, you know, just a little hint at things to come. Dead Punnett Society is, uh, on, we are on the brink of expanding our operations onto multiple platforms and we want to really grow this project and expand it uh, and, and reach the people. You know, I, I started this project uh, 15 months ago it, it went through a variety of forms before the one that you, you now see before you. But uh, I, I started the podcast with the uh, with an understanding that there was something that was emerging on, on, on the horizon, off in the distance, and that I, I wanted to be there to respond to it and to develop and think through some of these questions, you know, collectively and in, pu- in a public sort of way with some really smart people. And now I think, you know, in the wake of of these electoral victories and the way in which the mainstream wing of the democratic party has its head up its ass. I think we're on the brink of something else much more extreme. And we here at DPS want to be ahead of the curve and prepared to reach as the most amount of people as possible as this wave uh, starts to crest. So head over to patreon.com, support the new left agenda. Uh, We appreciate all of that that you can't, you can't tell your friends, share us on Facebook, share us on Twitter, um, spread the message. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Ben. And we're going to continue chatting with you over on the B-side. That was fun. I'm excited for the B-side. Laters, guys. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother...